Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights. I'm Chris Pearce. And I'm David Cunnington. And in this episode, we speak to Dr. Danielle Andrade, Professor of Medicine at University of Toronto and Chair of the International League Against Epilepsy Task Force on the Transition of Patients with Epilepsy from Pediatric to Adult Care. And it's a topic that's um, close to our own experience because as parents of a 20-year-old with SEN2A, we're certainly aware of the issues of transitioning from paediatric care to the adult system. Yeah, certainly... um it's one that we're still going through, even though it was commenced, I guess, when he was 16, but really an ongoing navigation of the adult system. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. So what is transition? Transition is a slow, gradual process of preparing the patient and the family to the adult healthcare system, which is very different from just transferring a patient from pediatric to adult healthcare. During transition, um, it, it should start early, especially if you foresee that the patient will still be having seizures or other problems as they become adults. We and others have recommended starting the process at the age of 12 years, actually. So that's a very long process. And across those many years, what are the key aspects that you want to build into that transition? So there are several things. I think the first one that we start when the patient is 12 years old is just to introduce the concept of transition, uh, the idea that eventually this patient will leave the pediatric system and move to the adult system. Uh, the adult system in many places is very different from the pediatric one, so it's important to know about this so uh, patient and parents get prepared for this. It is important to explore what are the financial, the community, and the legal support. So this is very important in patients, many patients with SCN2A. Uh, that have, in addition to the epilepsy, intellectual disability or autism or other motor problems. So what are the, the resources that are going to be needed once this patient becomes um, an adult? So in the pediatric system, usually you don't have to worry about this. You have the supports, uh, but you need to make uh, sometimes, depending on, on the country where you are, uh, you need to make an application uh, to see what kind of financial support you're going to have, um, if you think that this person will need, they will need different housing, uh, if they will need uh, further help paying for things like physiotherapy, speech therapy, and what kind of school is available after the age of 18. I say 18, most places 18 is when they are no longer a child, they are considered adults. Uh, some places, it might be a bit earlier, a bit later, but usually 18. In terms of what the patient and the family can do, in addition to looking for these resources, it's just getting used to the idea of having a person becoming a little more independent. And I understand in cases of SCN2A, not always we can reach that level of independence, but perhaps little things like teaching the patient 
when to take the medication. Maybe the patient can start noticing when he or she is running low on medication and might need a refill. Just telling the parents I'm running low. And little things like that so that the patient gradually grows with the chronological age and will learn little skills that can help in the adult world. Uh, another important thing is being able to talk about side effects. So being able to express side effects, uh, which the patient may not initially recognize as side effects from that medication, but just being able to, to express the uncomfortable feeling of a headache or, or the difficulties with sleep and things like that. So the patient needs to uh, be prepared and we, we should try to help the patient to um, express um, his feelings and gradually manage his uh, health treatment to the level that is appropriate to that patient. Going forward, uh, we want to make sure that the family is ready for transition. And this is something we do a little later when the patient is 16 or 17 years old. We actually have a standard questionnaire where the parents will answer, uh, for instance, um, I know uh, who will be the neurologist following my son in the adult system. I know how to get prescriptions. I know when to go to emergency room. I know what situations I should be calling um, the doctor. I should be running to emergency room immediately. So things that for parents of SCN2A patients are well known, but we wanna make sure that they are also aware of the resources in the adult system. Another part of transition is screening for risk factors of a poor transition. So for instance, if you have a patient that is on ketogenic diet and it's working well, is there a ketogenic diet clinic in the adult system? We know that ketogenic diets are very common in the pediatric system, but in the adult, they're very rare. So what are you planning to do? Are you going to discontinue? The, the diet before moving to the adult system? Are you going to go to a different uh, city where there is a, a ketogenic diet program? So all of this kind of planning needs to be done. Will the insurance pay for the treatment once the, the child turns 18 or 21, depending on, on where you are? So all that needs to be prepared and you have to make sure this things are in place because the last thing you want is to have to run to emergency room with a recently um, turned 18 uh, child that is going to an adult hospital and you don't have any of that information. You don't know if your insurance is gonna pay for that. You don't. They may even ask you for power of attorney in the adult system. So you need to, if that's the, the common practice in your jurisdiction, you need to have that uh, done well in advance of the 18th birthday. You make a really good point. So it's not just about healthcare. It does cover education. You know, for our son, at school finished at 18 and all of a sudden his week was empty. And then what do you fill that with? And also as parents, almost the way we approach parenting is we've, you know, really done a lot for our son. 
and we also have to transition and allow that independence and back off. And that's something, you know, it's just not been the way we've approached things up to this point. And that can be hard for us to stop ourselves doing things for Will in the same way. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I see very commonly is uh, we ask questions and the parents will provide all the information. And most of the times, the information has to come from the parents. But it's interesting to give the teenager a chance to speak and, and hear what they have to say as well. It's just a tendency of, of, of parents coming from a pediatric place to speak and give all the information very quickly, very efficiently, but it's, it's important if, if the patient can communicate a little bit to let us know what they think as well. So you've been doing a lot of research in this space. What has your, your research been telling you about transition? That unfortunately, it's not well done in most places. So most places, what we have is just a transfer of care. So the patient uh, sees the pediatric neurologist as usual until the age of 17 and a half, and then they get a letter saying, or, or, or at the last visit, they'll say, okay, from now on, you're going to be seen by Dr. So in this other building, and we'll transfer your information there. So that is a, a relatively common problem for all types of epilepsies. It really falls short of the needs of patients with epilepsy. The needs can be different from a patient with SCM2A and a patient with a juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, but they all have important needs that should have been met over the years uh, through a regular transition program. I was the chair of the International League Against Epilepsy. I'm now the co-chair with Dr. Wiman Abu from Paris. And one of the, the things we are doing is asking families, patients and families, what is their experience? Like I said, the large majority just had a plain and simple transfer. The ones that are still underage, still seen in the pediatric system, they were not aware of a transition program in their, in their areas. So that might be that. I think it's one of the biggest problems we have right now. It's like Dave said, it's, it's, you're sort of released into this void. We know, I know with Will, we, we were actually pulled into a transition program, but it was literally, you will now be managed by your, um, what's called here a general practitioner who has no epilepsy, uh, background. And our first appointment with them is, well, you'll need to tell us what we need to do. So it's definitely a big, a big void. Yes. Our research is telling us as well is that there are very few adult neurologists that focus on pediatric onset genetic epilepsy. So that's an area uh, that also needs a lot of development. And I'm involved with our College of Physicians, so all our sort of specialist physician training. And across the board, there's very poor training in people with intellectual disability or other disabilities and managing them, let alone specific disorders like DEEs that are more complex and have medical aspects as well as the disability aspects. Yes, yes. It's everywhere, unfortunately. And you developed a transition guide to guide adult physicians for Dravet syndrome. It's a really great resource. But a bit as you alluded to, you know, different disorders have slightly different needs. And how do you manage that? You know, there's a hundred genetic DEEs that have been identified. You know, how do you avoid having to develop a guide for each specific one and try and have some sort of general guide? What's the balance there? 
we did uh, develop a more general guide, uh, which we published in 2017. That was done for patients in the province of Ontario. But we had, we kind of divided the guidelines at that point into two different populations, patients with intellect, epilepsy plus intellectual disability and patients with epilepsy without intellectual disability. So of course, the ones with intellectual disability, even though it was a very large group, would encompass the ones with DEEs. And in those cases, we would talk about the, the, the things that I said before, like the need for power of attorney and um, perhaps group homes and, and all those things, the, the explore the financial and social and legal uh, options available. We also talked about the need to educate adult neurologists into um, pediatric onset epilepsies with, especially with genetic background. What the, the, the traditional training of the adult epileptologist is um, you training very severe forms of epilepsy that are usually not associated with a significant intellectual disability. So like temporal lobe epilepsy, frontal lobe epilepsy. So these are pharmacoresistant. They need surgery. The patients have several comorbidities, but the comorbidities are different. We're talking about anxiety, depression. It's not the intellectual disability that we see in DEEs. It's not the autism that we see in DEEs. The adult neurologist, again, and everyone at this point, I mean, uh, we are learning more about the precision medicine, but Precision medicine for adults with epilepsy and normal intellect is not where precision medicine is for patients with DEEs. In this sense, I think we are a bit more advanced in the DEEs where you have a condition that you should give a sodium channel blocker, another one where you should not give a sodium channel blocker. So this kind of little nuances, which are super important in the treatment of the patient, but they're not very clear yet. They're not very common in the world of uh, epilepsy without intellectual disability. And so you've learned a lot and you've learned that, you know, transition may really mean transfer. I suppose I like that language because that's a bit how you describe our experience with transition. What do you hope to learn with some of the research projects that you're doing now? Well, one of the things is uh, we want to get the experience of the patients and families regarding transition to see where are the needs. I mean, the things we have done so far are based on the medical side. So we got the, all that information from physicians, social workers, and, and, and psychiatrists, and psychologists. But we want to know actually what is the patient and the parent's experience. The other thing that we want to know, of course, is the natural history of genetic epilepsies. Uh, because I think once we understand that better, we can have a better transition guide. What we did for Dravet syndrome, for instance, we could do for other diseases. Uh, but we need a lot of research in the area of adult phenotype or, or natural history um, of these diseases. Just to give you an example, in, in Dravet syndrome, which is the one that we have more information, for every seven papers in children, there's only one in adults. So we really need more information about all the other 
uh, epileptic encephalopathies uh, in adults. So that's part of our research as well. We're looking to find out that. Yeah, that's a really good point because a lot of families, and we've been quite involved in promoting participation in natural history studies, um, we hadn't thought about that, that it'll also inform the transition process and what sort of care needs there are going to be as people transition into adult care. It's very important for precision medicine, for sure. But when you leave the pediatric system and you come to an adult neurologist that will tell you, I never heard about this disease or I don't know what happens with adults that have this disease. All I know is what happens to children. You see the huge need of really understanding the phenotype, understanding the natural history of these diseases. And so what research projects are you currently running? And and also what, what can we get families and patients to help you with that? So one of them is uh, the natural history of SCN2A, SCN8A, CHD2, STXBP1, SYNGAP1, PCDH19. So it's very important to really understand what goes on with these patients, not only regarding seizures, but many other aspects of, of their lives. It would be great if your families could participate in this study. The other study that we are doing right now uh, that we really need family input is exactly the transition. What was their experience for those that have children over the age of 18? Or what is their experience currently for those that have children between 12 and 17 years. So are they getting any transition process at all or they just heard at one point they will be transferred? So all of this uh, research uh, we are doing, we of course have um, ethics research board approvals to contact families and, and get this information from the families. We do other research here as well. We look for genes, we do whole genome sequencing, we do a lot of the phenotyping, uh, genotyping, uh, characterization. Uh, we work with other investigators like the Epi25 project, the Epigen Consortium. So it's fantastic that you're doing that research. Are there, is there access for families who don't speak English as a first language to participate in those research projects? This research that we are doing with patients, we have in several languages, so we don't want the language of the patient to be a barrier. We have this research uh, going on in Spanish, Italian, French, some of them also in Chinese, Persian, and we are in Portuguese, and we are working on a few other languages. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and your insights and really look forward to seeing um, the insights that come from your research and we'll certainly make sure that we post the information about the research um, and share it amongst our community. Thank you very much. It was great uh, the opportunity to talk to you and uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Thank you. So that was really great listening to Dr Andrade. What did you sort of take home from that, Chris? One of the, the things that really struck me, which we've, we've known, is really that there is a lack of detailed understanding of what a DE is and what that 
what the complex support that that person or family needs once they exit the paediatric system. It's Many of these patients are very complex and need input from a number of different specialist areas and uh, that, that is, un, is unknown and there's a lot of education to be done in that space. And you certainly work in this space in Australia and, you know, from what I at least observe for, or from what you tell me, it seems like the challenges we face here are very similar to what Dr Andrade was talking about. Yeah, very, very similar. Um, you know, obviously our health systems are very different, but uh, the challenges that are faced in other places of the world are certainly faced here as well. And what about you? What did you take away? Oh, I really thought it was just distilled into that comment of you, the word transfer versus transition. And if I had to sum up our own experience, it would fit with transfer as we talked about. And often that's what people think of when they're thinking of transition. But transition is far more than just a transfer of care. And it is a long process that's got many facets to it. So I think that's a really good way of summing up sort of where we're at and where we need to get to. And there is a lot of work happening in this space, both internationally and in Australia. So fingers crossed for better outcomes moving forward. So if you're interested in learning more about SCN2A or developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, you can subscribe to the podcast and let others in the field know the podcast is available. It's available by any of the podcast apps and the Apple Podcast app. And you can follow us at SCN2A Australia on Facebook or Twitter at SCN2A Australia. And thank you for joining. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 